Hey, this is Dylan Collins, CEO of Super Awesome. Welcome to Kid Tech, the show that goes behind the scenes with uh, the people who help make the kids' digital ecosystem what it is. This is one of the most interesting episodes uh, I've ever done with John Bolsch from Toy World magazine. Uh, it's about the past, present, and future of the toy industry. I hope you'll enjoy it. John Bolsch. Publisher, Managing Director of Toy World. Um, as I was saying just before we started recording, um, I can't believe we haven't done this interview before, given how much um, I know of you and how much I, and in fact, everyone in the team reads your material. And um, B, given all of your opinions and knowledge um, on the toy space at large. And I think thirdly, because of how interesting the toy space is right now in terms of all the changes um, it's, that it is going through. It, it, it always has been. It always has been, and it always will be, a fascinating industry. Mm. And I suppose that's one of the reasons I'm glad that this is where I landed. You know, when I first started working in trade press, um, I, I worked on some absolute cracking titles, Brushes International, Paint and Resin News, Process Biochemistry, um, Storage Handling Distribution. I mean, you know, can you imagine getting excited about any of these things? Those are exhilarating titles. Absolutely. And, and trust me, they were exactly what you imagined them to be. Um, whereas I was also lucky enough within the portfolio, there was a magazine called Toy Trader. Um, and that seemed much more interesting. It seemed that if I went to a party and somebody said, what do you do? And I said, I work on a magazine. What magazine? That I had more chance of somebody not walking away if I said Toy Trader rather than Brushes International. So, um, yeah, you know, I've been very, very lucky enough to have um, found myself on a toy publication. And, and you know, that's where I've always enjoyed. Of, of all the magazines I've ever published, all the magazines I've ever worked on, mm. the toy space was the one that, you know, I really felt the most, you know, the most at home in, you know, it is, it is always interesting. It is always changing. Um, the people in it are great. And, you know, I, I, you know, there are very, very few industries I can imagine that would have been as fun to work in as this one. You started Toy World in 2011? I did, yes. What was... What was the toy industry like? I, I want to know about the, the why you started, but what was the toy industry like then? In many respects, it was not that dissimilar to the toy industry that you see now. Now, obviously, I mean, I, my very first toy fair, my very first London toy fair was 1981. And if you go back to that kind of period, we really have seen some, you know, some quite astonishing changes in the industry. Um, and yet fundamentally if you look at what underpins the toy industry i mean i'm i've i've seen some brands come back round three four five times mm. i've seen the relaunch of the relaunch of the relaunch um i've seen other brands that in truth have never gone away in all of that time mm. um so in a way there are some incredible uh toys incredible brands that underpin everything that we do. But of course, we're also like any consumer market changing the constantly. And of course, particularly because you know we're, we're working with kids, kids are our target audience and kids have changed dramatically over the years. And I think what the toy industry is very good at and always has been very good at to be fair is adapting to the changes that they see in their target audience. Um, so, you know, of course, the toy industry has changed in the past 11 years. You know, we've seen 
huge growth in online retail. It was embryonic. When we launched in 2011, mm -hmm. online retail was kind of just getting started. Obviously, now it's very much uh, front and center in terms of, of, of sales channels. Marketing, consumer marketing has absolutely transformed. In those days, mm -hmm. everything was about how big a, a, a pot of money you could put behind a TV advertising campaign. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you look at that now and you know that the pace of change in consumer marketing has has been absolutely rapid over the past few years so you know we've seen some major changes but as i say underneath it all um it's incredible how some of the products that i find myself writing about um i'll sit there and tell somebody i went to the original launch of um, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago um and um you know a, a great property a great brand a great toy often proves itself to be a great toy, no matter whether it's brand invented last week or if it you know, was first invented 40 years ago. Yeah, and, and, and why did you, like, is it an enthusiasm for the space or like what, why did you set up Toy World? Like, was it more business opportunity, enthusiasm, both? Combination of lots of different things, really. I'd been at, at another publishing company sure. for um, a long time. And um, long story short, I'd run out of road there. So I had a couple of options. One was to take my, uh, what I'd call inverted commas, transferable skills as a publisher um, and go into a whole new market. Um, and the second was to launch my own toy magazine. Mm. And to be truthful, that was always my preference because, mm. um, you know, toys was, as I said before, toys has always been the, the industry that I've, you know that I've loved the most, that I've enjoyed the most, that I that I feel I've made the best contacts um, and the best relationships in. And I think when you've spent thirty years building up knowledge of a market, experience in a market, building up contacts, um, you know you, you kind of feel reluctant to walk away from that. And and certainly as well, you know, twelve years ago, I felt that trade press had become incredibly dull incredibly stale it was it was in, incredibly formulaic there was there was a blueprint which very few people wanted to deviate from um and i felt that we were losing engagement with the readers um and i made it you know fairly clear to um the company i was with at the time that i felt that it needed a dramatic change uh, and that company made it very clear to me that they weren't interested in um, any sort of change, let alone dramatic change. And I think sometimes when you, um, you know, in that position, you think to yourself, well, I back my ideas. I believe I'm right. And the best way to test that is to launch your own publication. And, you know, to be fair, most of the magazines in the, the toy and the licensing space were originally launched by somebody who had left the previous magazine and set right. up on their own. It's right, a, right. it's a fairly consistent way that that magazines actually um, end up coming into uh, into being and getting launched. So what I did was nothing that hadn't been done many times before, but it hadn't been done for many years. At that point, um, the market you know hadn't really seen a, a, a new title for for decades. Um, so I think we've, you know, I, I felt um, that it was time for perhaps a fresh approach, do something a little bit different. Um, and I'm very pleased to say that the last 12 years has been um, has, has been 
an incredible ride. So really, you have been sort of at the forefront of two industries that have been evolving side by side. I mean, one toy and the other publishing. Um, you know, I mean, because publishing, publishing in 2011 and publishing in 2023 are are night and day i would say i mean yeah. is it is, is it is it harder easier or just different now from a publishing point of view oh absolutely i would say different uh, there are different challenges um but underneath it all the, the the goal that you are aiming for is as it always was which is to create content which people find interesting the difference perhaps these days is the way you can deliver that content the speed with which you can deliver the content you know when I, if i go back to you know the very early days of my publishing career all we had was a monthly magazine and that was it so if if you if a big bit of news broke one day after we'd sent a magazine to press and of course in those days it took longer to print because we had to make film and then they had to make plates and everything else so everything took an awful lot longer so um you know it, it, a big bit of news broke so I would phone 10 of my friends and they would phone 10 of their friends and they would phone 10 of their friends and the, the jungle drums would be um everything would eventually um you know so the, the news would eventually get out. These days, we hear a bit of news and we can, you know, we can upload it, press the button, um, amplify it on social media, and the whole world can know within half an hour, you know, which on the one hand has radically transformed publishing. You know, it's, you know, the, the opportunities that that offers are phenomenal, but it is a very, very different job um because we you know what you know particularly in the b2b area what we've had to make sure is that we remain you know topical relevant interesting create great content but also commercially viable you know i've seen a lot of companies race headlong towards uh, on towards digital almost neglect print to the point where print becomes an afterthought and then they sit there two or three years down the line and realize that their numbers no longer add up um, because it obviously it's infinitely harder in the B2B space to monetize digital, a digital activity in the way that you can in print. So we've always had a very, um, you know, sort of very uh, even handed approach where everything we do, it's a brand toy world, whether it be our print magazine, whether it be our online, whether it be our website, whether it be our social media like LinkedIn, it's all about sharing content. It's all about making sure that wherever people consume their content, we, we are there. But also it's about making sure that our business is future proofed. So that, for example, you know, when I, I occasionally get people come to me and say, oh, you know, John, print is dead. And I gleefully pull out a copy of our 400 page January print edition, put <laughs> it in front of them. I love to see the look on their face. Um, you know, we've, we've just come off the back April, May, June, three consecutive issues that were 200 plus pages. Mm. Print is a long way from dead. Mm. If you make sure that you balance up what you do in the print space and what you do in the digital space, mm. you mm. understand the strengths of both, but you don't cannibalize, you don't um end up forcing yourself into a corner that you don't want to be forced into so we've always been very much you know print is the heart and soul of what we do but digital opens up such a fantastic array of possibilities particularly on a global scale that you've got to embrace both you know i think if you either jealously guard print by 
by under um, investing and performing in digital, you're hurting your brand. But equally, if you throw yourself headlong into digital and almost neglect print, Mm. that has its own consequences. So we've always been very careful to make sure that we manage everything that we do across all of the different channels so that that they all have a reason to exist. Mm. And and you've, I mean, you know, a lot of your readers will be listeners to this podcast and, 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 and others as well. Like, how I mean, other than sort of multiple devices, like how do you see toy professionals having changed over the years? Well, as as you say, I mean, that's the first thing is in in, in the old days, we we just all call each other with with gossip sure. and yeah. bits of news. These days, everybody's you know always on twenty four hours. You know, mm. I was in Vegas last week at the licensing show, and you know I'd put a I'd put a post on LinkedIn, and even allowing for the time difference, it's incredible how <laughs> suddenly you see yeah. all the impressions mm. build up, and you think, goodness me, some of these people almost must never sleep. Um, Indeed, well, particularly in Vegas. Yeah, um, but 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 do you find like are they more they've access to more data, you know, let's say toy professionals, you know, in in the 2020s versus toy professionals, let's say 10 or 15 years ago, they've access to more data, but but does that mean they are more proficient at using it? Like, do you see things like that? Well, there's, there's, there's two questions there. The first question, yes, probably the biggest single change in whether it be toy retailers or toy companies is in the old days, the, the classic gut feel, um, the hunch was, the driving factor behind so many decisions. Um, and, you know, I, I knew buyers who would walk in and place an order for a hundred thousand or half a million items, just because, you know, their gut told them this is going to be big. And sometimes that led to huge profits and sometimes it led to huge disasters. But in those days, that was how it was because there was a, a, a real lack of, 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 valid data available um very clearly we're in a a data rich environment at the moment you have data coming at you from all angles i think that's a fascinating question to say are they better at reading it Um, i think some people are better than others i think some uh some data uh requires lateral thinking um, I mean, there are there are there's unquestionably certain data that which is released, which is taken verbatim, which is taken at face value, which I think uh, a more experienced operator would potentially look at and say, well, okay, I'll accept the the trends and the patterns that this is pointing to, but I will also use my experience of the market to appreciate that it's important to add some valuable context to this. But of course, you know, you know what we have seen in the retail sector, particularly now, not so much the supply side, but in the retail sector, and if you go towards the major accounts, you're seeing a lot of younger um, buyers come through and younger buyers always came through, but they often came through under the mentorship, under the stewardship of a far more experienced buying director or, um, you know, a senior buyer. You're often seeing now at some of the major accounts, younger buyers um, who've previously bought in a completely unrelated category, could be food, could be homewares, could be anything, um, landing on uh, in the toy retail buying team and 
they will be there for a year, 18 months, and then they'll move on to buying something completely different. Mm-hmm. And those people, particularly if they don't have the benefit of being able to um, talk to somebody who perhaps has got a bit more experience. I mean, a classic example of this, um, a friend of mine who um, sells mainly outdoor toys was approached by an outdoor buyer in May for markdown money um, because they said, oh, we need to start sh- you know, clearing outdoor toys um, and you need to give us markdown money to fund that. And, and uh, the supplier was I mean, obviously quite horrified and saying, look, you know, the, the season hasn't even started. Wait until the sun shines and you, you know, you, the next thing you know, th- this product will be flying out of the door. Anybody who'd been in the industry for any length of time would know that. But if you just come in from outside and you don't have access to that kind of um, that kind of understanding and, 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 and you know, 10 years worth of, of, of trends, um, you could look at data and think, oh, outdoor sales have been slow this year. They're, they're slow compared to last year. Um, we need you know, we, we perhaps need to do something about this rather than being patient, waiting two or three weeks, get a week or 10 days of constant sunshine and then re-looking at the uh, looking at the stock holding position and probably finding it's completely different. So I, I definitely, I mean, obviously look, the, the, you know, the, the, the proliferation of data is phenomenal because you know, it reinforces and it gives you so many more perspectives that, that perhaps in the old days, it really did come down to one guy who'd been in the, you know, been in the industry for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and one guy could make or break a line. We still see this to some degree in America with Walmart and Target, where if one buyer says no, a line may not even go into, um, you know, it's being manufactured in the US. So, you know, in those days, credible power was held by a very small number of people and somebody's gut could make a difference between something taking off or never getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. These days, data will often change that perspective. And I think that's, that, that can only be a good thing. Mm. What does, I mean, I think we could probably do an episode about the history and present of toy retail just on its own as a topic. I don't want to ask you about, well, I do, but I'm not going to ask you about either of those two things. I do want to talk about the future, just, just sort of listening to your comments on buyers in particular. I mean, do you think the future of toy retail is, is fewer larger platforms is it um, sort of something similar to what we have now? Or do you see the emergence of new specialist toy platforms or maybe something else entirely? Like, I mean, we're having this conversation in 10 years time. Yeah. What do you think it looks like? I, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I'm, I'm always extremely reluctant to predict the future because uh, I'm, 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 I'm not, I don't have a real crystal ball, um, just a metaphorical one. Um, what, I, what I would say is this retailing not just toy retailing but all retailing is incredibly complex um i think there are a few things that underpin the sale of toys that mean that the pace of change in toys um may not be as great as certain other areas i mean i think one toys can often be a very emotional purchase so you're not buying a cardboard box you are buying a toy you're buying something that you think a kid is going to love and and engage with and 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 bond with so sometimes 
the, the, the personal experience is different. You, you know, I think that's why we have got a, a relatively strong specialist sector here in the UK. We have a lot of independent toy shops. We have Smiths. We have the entertainer groups of specialist toy retailers who sell nothing but toys. Um, you don't get that in the States after the demise of Toys R Us. You don't have a, a major specialist toy group in the US. Um, I think it works here because of uh, you know scale reasons, but I also think it works because a lot of people who want to buy a toy do want to go in. They want to touch it. They want to feel it. They want to look at all the different options. They maybe want somebody to help them. And I also think they often want to take their kids to a toy shop because it's difficult to make a website a magical experience in the same way that you can make a toy store a magical experience. You know, anybody who's been into, whether it be Hamleys, whether it be Selfridges, whether it be your local branch of Smiths or the entertainer, you know, if you go in with a five, six, seven year old child and you just look at their face and you see the excitement, um, you know, you can't replicate that with online. So I genuinely, genuinely believe that what we have now as a, as a, as a retail mix, it's not going to dramatically change. Online clearly is a, a, a key channel for all toys, for, for, for all categories, and toys is not, you know, not immune to that. Online will still have a key role to play, but I think we saw it during the pandemic, and I certainly think we've seen it post-pandemic, that when people have been able to go back to a physical toy store, we've, we've, we've very much seen them doing that, uh, whether it be parents with their kids, whether it be grandparents. Um, you know, It's easier, in a way, to go into a store and see what, what excites you than browse through hundreds of pages of a website to try and find something that is a flat 2D image. So I do think that physical stores are here to stay, without a doubt. I think we will see the major accounts ebb and flow. There will be years where the grocers or a major like Argos will see the toy industry as a key, um, as a key category. At the moment, we're not in that sort of phase. The grocers, I don't feel, are prioritising toys in the way that if you go back 10 years, if you go back to when Toy World launched, the grocers were absolutely pivotal to most people's launch and indeed, you know, mm. sales strategy, retail sales strategies. Mm. Um, these days, it's, it's more targeted. Mm. Um, Argos is clearly not the player that it was, but that doesn't mean, you know, anybody should write them off forever. But you know, if you talk to a, a toy company that's got 20, 30 years experience and is looking at the numbers that Argos will produce now compared to the Argos uh, numbers 20, 30 years ago, um, these are completely different ball games. Woolworths um, was a major non, you know, multi-category retailer. Mm -hmm. And I think you've got retailers like B&M on the high street and and in and in larger sort of out of town retail uh, parks, who have absolutely benefited from Woolworths' disappearance. So you know, people like B and M and Home Bargains, rather than seeing them as value retailers, I think when it comes to toys, they offer a really important um, channel for, for for toy companies to reach consumers. So I think we've we've seen that growth area, but I think we're also going to see some 
growth in multiple accounts where they can see a value to attracting parents, you know, to using toys to bring consumers through. I'm thinking particularly of games since they were acquired by Fraser's group and what they have done. You know, you think of game traditionally as a consumer, as as a computer games retailer, and yet you walk in now to some of the stores where they've got specific toy um, installations and they're phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And I think we could see more of that. and I, and I think it shows when you've got retailers like that who see an opportunity in toys, we're not saturated by any stretch of the imagination. There's still room for people if they bring an innovative a- approach to retailing. Mm. Um, I think, you know, five or 10 years ago, you know, there were certain established places where you would find toys and people found it hard to believe that, going forward there would be more touch points and yet as i say i think we've really seen the emergence of b&m and home bargains we've really seen the emergence of Mm. of retailers Mm. like fraser's and game so there are probably other retail operators out there who are looking at toys and thinking do you know what this is an opportunity um and uh, so I, i i do see hopefully as diverse a a, a, a sort of retail environment for toys as possible, because I think that's that's to the to, for the good of the industry. When you look at platforms like Roblox, and I mean that as a place for play mm. specifically, yeah. and you think about sort of the growth of of digital cosmetics, so mm. you know, kids buying different skins and 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 um, mm. different types of sort of digital goods like that. Do you think that is fundamentally removing sort of dollars and pounds from the traditional toy space? And 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 does do, do you think the rest of the toy industry thinks differently about about your opinion to that? <laughs> I don't know how the rest of the toy industry thinks. So I think there's going to be a lot of different opinions about that. Okay, I think it's a double-edged sword. Very clearly. Uh, you know, if you again, I, I'll go back 20, 30 years where Hasbro saw its biggest competitor as Mattel and vice versa. I think the world has moved on now that toy companies will look and say, actually, we are competing for uh, for consumers budget with things like skins i know with my own sales director's sons um they'll often ask for money to put into roblox or um fortnite or whatever games for for their birthdays this is it's an absolute tangible thing there is only so much money to go around but i think we've also got to look at the positives behind something like roblox and what it's doing to engage kids with particular brands, with particular properties, so that they have a stronger affinity for them, which then probably makes it more likely that they will want to have some sort of physical representation like a like a toy or some sort of consumer good. So I, I, I certainly, I, it's not black and white, there's lots of shades of gray. I don't think we can sit there and say, oh, you know, Roblox is, 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 is a competitor to the toy industry and therefore we should, we should be sort of concerned. I think we have to look at all the huge, and, and absolutely positive, tangible benefits from the growth of, of platforms like Roblox. Um, but but yes, you cannot get away from the fact that 
there is, you know, parents have got an amount of money that they will spend on their on their children, and therefore, yes, we're con- we're competing with every every way that a parent could spend money on their kids you know and that could be training shoes it could be skins in roblox it could be experiences um but we've got to be part of that overall conversation and this is where if you can really create a bond between kids and a particular brand or a particular toy you you have more longevity you've got more chance that over the long term it will work in your benefit and platforms like roblox are phenomenal at helping to to engender that real bond between a child and a a particular brand Mm -hmm. when you think i mean you've seen all manner of patterns around you know toy companies over the years and you sort of talked about it you know the the sort of the forever brands and the ones that have sort of relaunched two or three or four times at this stage is there room today for a new toy company? Like our startup toy companies, are they just scratching a lottery ticket? Or or can <laughs> you can can you can you sort of deliberately build a successful toy company in 2023? Look, it's always been about scratching a lottery ticket. You <laughs> need, you've always needed that little bit of luck. Okay. I mean, there's, if, if you sit there and follow a, a blueprint religiously, uh, you always, you know, you always need a bit of luck, but can you build a new toy company? Yes, absolutely. Look at what Darren Garnham has done with Toy Kido. Look at what Nat Southworth has done with Cat Toys. Look at what um, Richard North and Dawn and the team have done with Wow Stuff. You absolutely can create a new toy company if you've got the innovation if you've got the ideas if you've got the drive if you've got the understanding um it is still um a market that thrives on new it's still a market that you know needs people who fundamentally can understand where kids are and what kids are doing and like all markets if you get fresh blood if you get new ideas if you get slightly different approaches and different perspectives um that can only be a good thing for the industry you know let let's not beat around the bush it, it, there are a lot of very big established players and you know it it does take time and it takes knowledge and experience and it takes money but you know as i say the the three companies i've named and there are plenty more look at where jazzwares were when i launched the business uh 12 years ago what they were as a company then what they are as a company now look how moose toys has grown the business you know look when i first met the guys who started worlds apart they had a three meter square stand at toy fair uh, with about, I think, three kites stuck up on the on the back wall. <laughs> lovely, lovely guys, great guys, um, you know, with a dream and three kites. And if you look where that business has gone from Worlds Apart to Moose to what it is today, you can absolutely build um, a successful business um, if you've got the passion, the determination and the, and the ideas, 100%. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's 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 interesting you mentioned uh, Darren and Tokido. We, we had him on a few, ep- well, quite a few episodes back, but he's building very much with Roblox at the core um, mm. of, of their strategy. And, and there's a lot, I've seen a lot of other toy companies, both established big ones and, and, and new ones doing the same thing. Do you think there's some kind of world in the future where Roblox becomes a physical toy retailer? 
look, I mean, you certainly couldn't rule it out, could you? <laughs> um, you know, I don't know if that's what they want to do. Um, I'm not close enough to them as a business to know if that would even be part of their, mm. um, you know, of their thought process and their strategy. Um, they've certainly got the capability and the capacity should they choose to go down more of a sort of transactional, um, you know, hard lines route. But yeah, they could do it if they if they chose and they wanted to do it, whether that's what they, they see their future as. Mm. who who knows but um you know I've, I've, the one thing i've learned i think over all the years i've been in the toy trade is 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 quite literally never say never because <laughs> things, things you can things you can write off and say yeah that's never going to happen and then 10 15 years later you go hmm, okay yeah. so so things changed um um, I want to shift to, to macroeconomics just for the for the last bit here how do you how resilient do you see the uk consumer economy and, and and by extension toy market and and maybe sort of in contrast to the US if you've got any yeah. views well I think you've picked the perfect day to do it I'm not quite sure when this will be broadcast but um for for context uh, today um the Bank of England's just announced the interest rate rising to five percent in the UK the highest level it's been for 15 years uh to combat inflation although I'm not sure of why they believe there's only one tool to combat inflation, uh, although I'm not a real economist. Um, interesting that we inflation is half uh, in America what it is in the UK at the moment. And I think you are absolutely seeing, therefore, you know, the, the challenges that a toy market would have when we have no, you know, we can influence certain things. We can influence producing great toys. We can influence making retail exciting. We can influence putting our toys in front of kids through the myriad of different marketing opportunities. What we can't influence is, is the economic situation that parents find themselves in. Um, and it would be um, remiss, I think, of anybody to completely divorce what is happening in the wider economy with you know, the ramifications for any consumer market like toys. I've spent many, many years in the toy industry with people telling me toy, that toys is quote unquote recession proof. It's not. What it is, is it's recession resistant. It's a little bit like the difference between when they always used to say that uh, suntan lotion was waterproof and it never was. You know, it, it's water resistant. We're recession resistant. We are probably one of the last consumer demographics to, to you know, to be really impacted by economic headwinds. Mm. We're maybe one of the first to come out of um, a really challenging economic period because underlying this is our audience is predominantly kids we'll, we'll park kid adults for the time being and say that most toys are sold to kids so parents will always like to keep their kids happy they'll always like to reward their kids they'll always be birthdays they'll always be christmases um they'll always be grandparents they'll always be opportunities to, to you know to, to buy toys for kids and i think generally parents always want to get keep their kids happy and give them as mm -hmm. much as they can but we've also got to be realistic. You know, when you've got um, everything going up, you know, which is essential, food, petrol, uh, gas, electricity, mortgage rates, this is not, those are not discretionary spends. Um, they, these are essential spends. And when you take a lot of money out of parents' pockets, and let's be honest, a lot of you know younger pa parents of younger children will have mortgages. They'll be in, they'll be affected by today's announcements in the way that 
they've been affected by what's been happening with energy prices um, and, food, and food prices over the, over the past sort of six to 12 months. So very clearly, you know, it does have an impact. It will have an impact. It doesn't mean that toys won't be sold. It might change the kind of toys that are sold. Maybe we'll see certain pricing bands more impacted than others. Um, maybe we will see um, more pocket money or, or lower price toys sold. Or maybe we will see fewer toys sold. Maybe it won't affect the higher prices. Maybe instead of three or four Christmas presents, they'll get one big present. Each parent is different. You cannot, I, I don't believe it's healthy to generalize and treat every single parent the same, just as it's not healthy to generalize and say that every single person has been very badly impacted by the economic situation in the past year. Some are in a better position to ride it out than others. Mm. But we do have to be, I think, mindful that this is going to have an impact. Of course, America, as you say, is quite contrasting. Um, during the pandemic, their government ha handed out huge financial subsidies to parents, which helped them to go out and spend a bit more money on toys. Um, they've managed to get inflation under control far quicker than we have. So they do not have the pressures um, in terms of what you know food costs or what petrol or gas or electricity costs, quite the same pressures that we've got. Although having said that, having got back from Vegas last week and having walked the aisles um, where a, a coffee was £10, and I actually paid $13 for a sandwich that would have cost me, you know, £3.50 in Tesco. Right. Um, you know, America's not immune to it either, trust me. Mm -hmm. um, and we can't divorce the two. We, we absolutely can't divorce the two. But I think we've got to take the positives. We've got to say that in the main, if parents have to cut back a little on themselves, that I think they are prone or inclined to do that perhaps more than they will cut back on their kids um, there's a lot of grandparents out there that we need to step up this year um, I just became a grandparent two months ago and um, I have to say I think it's there's an onus on my generation that perhaps we've got to step up a little bit um, if parents are um, finding themselves a little bit uh, mm. uh, more financially squeezed that perhaps we might have to do our bit um mm. i'm hoping that in the final analysis it will it will balance out to a degree but i i think anybody who puts their head in the sand and says no whatever's happening in the economy you know it doesn't affect toys um i i think that's extremely naive but i think what we've got to hope is that we are protected from the the worst impacts of of the financial situations mm. Well, John, I think we also need to schedule a specific crystal ball gazing episode because I think I think as much as you don't like making predictions about the future, it would still be extremely enjoyable to do so. Um, I'll, I'll polish my crystal ball in in readiness. Well, I'll tell you what: if we do an episode, I'll bring some, and you can bring some, and we can we can uh, we can bring all of these these grand predictions together. Um, John Balsh, uh, Managing uh, Director and Publisher of Toy World, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on Kid Tech today. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Dylan.